0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is BigAmateurism.com. You can find me on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. I also have a blog that you can check out if you'd like, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's cagerredu dot com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can send me an email to rich at CagerRedux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is July 4th, 2022, and on this Independence Day, I was reflecting back to what I had to say a year ago on this day, and I did an episode titled Independence Day, and that was an important time. We were on the backside of the Austin decision, and just a few days after the NCAA released its interim policy and the beginning in earnest of the new nil era in college sports. And uh, since that episode, it was episode 35 last year, I have done almost 90 episodes, and I have done my best to chronicle what has happened since the transformative summer of 2021 and explain what is happening in real time and what themes have evolved and where I think college sports may be headed. And one of the things that I think is so important now is to really keep our eye on the ball of the equity issues, the social justice issues, and the importance of viewing those issues through the lens of American values. And what a better time to do that than on our Independence Day. And one of the important themes that has evolved over the last year is that while the NCAA, and more importantly now the Power Five, now that they have effective control over the voluntary regulation of college sports, is that while the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are trying to speak the language of athletes' rights for public consumption behind the scenes in their engagement with Congress, in their arguments in federal courts, and in their public relations campaign. The uh, Power Five and the NCAA are still speaking the language of limiting athletes' rights. And uh, just in the last couple of weeks, there have been some really important events that have popped onto the radar screen that suggest that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries don't really give a damn about the interests of the athletes. And we're in a new round of conference realignment that's being driven exclusively by money, market share, Power and prestige. And we also have a new set of criteria for hiring decision makers at the highest level in college sports that is based almost exclusively on the entertainment component of the big-time college sports marketplace, rather than on education and the educational values of higher education. So as I embark on a discussion of those issues and and what they may mean for athletes, I want to reflect back on what I said a year ago. So I'm just going to transition into my episode from July 4th of 2021. Enjoy. Today is Sunday, July 4th, 2021. Happy Independence Day. And I just wanted to get up a quick episode to talk about freedom. And this day last year, July 4th of 2020, I published a post titled Independence Day. And it was an Independence Day unlike any other in recent American history. Because instead of independence, we were all homebound. We were subject to executive orders in every state that prohibited us from freely moving and freely engaging and freely associating with all of the people and the things in this beautiful country that make life so rich here. And it was a really interesting dynamic. And as I was writing that post, I was thinking about that irony. And you have to remember, too, that in July of 2020, we were in the midst of a social reckoning. And we're on the backside of some really disturbing race-related incidents, including George Floyd's murder. And I was in a series of posts that really were more in the nature of social commentary than they were a critique of big-time college sports. But those two things had some meaningful crossover in the summer of 2020, as the NCAA and the Power Five were in the midst of this stealth campaign to eliminate the athletes' rights movement through their campaign in the Senate primarily. The irony of that was just infuriating to me because nobody was talking about it honestly. and it's one of the reasons that I really ramped up what I was doing in my writing then, and one of the reasons that I ultimately transitioned into the podcast, hopefully to make my message more accessible. But here you have these... People in the sports world, the college sports world, that is dependent in large measure on the labor. African American men l- looking at what's happening in the country and feeling compelled to speak out on it but they refused to speak on the things that they had absolute control over and that was changing the relationship the dishonest and indefensible relationship between the beneficiaries of the labor and the laborers they could have done that that was the magic moment and instead we got all these shallow meaningless statements that were directed to social justice at the broad societal level as if the business model in big-time college sports was free from all of the issues of historical systemic racism and the devaluation of black people in America and all of the things that we just don't want to think about. Honestly, we were at a point in the summer of 2020 where we couldn't look away And I think there was uh, opportunity, and I spoke about it in terms of opportunity, not just the sadness that I felt at what was happening. And I think most Americans shared that sadness at one level or another. But we had an environment that was a golden opportunity. To look at what was happening in big time college sports, the business of big time college sports. And instead, what we got were these shallow, meaningless statements from the NCAA, from university presidents and chancellors, from athletics directors and conference commissioners and big time college coaches that refused to even acknowledge the racial component in the business model. And that dynamic has its roots, I think, in our cultural resistance to talking about race honestly. And in that post that I wrote a year ago today, and I'll put up a link to it, I talk a little bit about how our country historically, in framing the values that this country is based upon, refused to talk honestly about the issue of race and the issue of slavery. I went back to the drafting of the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson, as we all know, was a primary author of the Declaration of Independence. I talk a little bit about Thomas Jefferson's thinking when he was drafting the Declaration of Independence and as he was putting that document together in one of his drafts he included 168 words that attempted to address slavery but it really was in the context of exculpating the colonists use of African slave labor. And Jefferson blamed King George III for the presence and perpetuation of slavery in the colonies and part of that 168-word passage that was ultimately taken out. But Jefferson said, re- referring to King George III, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty. "...in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation hither." This is a self-righteous passage, and Jefferson was only looking at the seller side of that market, not the buyer side. That's a convenient omission for Jefferson, because Jefferson himself was a participant in that market on the buyer side, because he owned slaves." That language was ultimately taken out, and Jefferson later would blame the delegates from Georgia and South Carolina trying to pitch it as a slave state issue. But it points out the fundamental hypocrisy that is part of the way that we have always thought about race and the legacy of slavery in this country. And then I also mention how the framers of the Constitution went to extraordinary lengths to avoid mentioning slavery at all in the Constitution itself. And I think there are only three constitutional provisions, the three-fifths clause, the importation clause, and the fugitive slave clause that relate directly to slavery. And the importation clause, which allowed the continued importation of slaves without federal interference, and the fugitive slave Clause which required states who had abolished slavery to return fugitive slaves to the owner in a slave state were undeniably pro slavery and they were in direct conflict with the broader principles of the Constitution. There's an interesting quote from John Quincy Adams, and this was in 1840, and this would have been some 50 odd years after the Constitutional Convention in 1787. But Adams had a really interesting quote that I talked a little bit about because I think what he said in 1840 is true today and explains, I think, how the institutions like the NCAA that are exploiting black labor have some cover Because people just don't want to talk about the realities of that kind of business model. It's just too uncomfortable, and that is a white sensibility. Whether you want to call it white guilt or you want to call it white denial, it is a white sensibility. So here's what Adams said, and he was talking about the framers' calculated decisions to avoid addressing slavery. And Adams said that those were the fig leaves under which the parts of the body politic are decently concealed. Basically, what he's saying is that the absence of honesty in the Constitution in addressing slavery, or reconciling the three instances where it does talk about slavery, and all those are pro-slavery provisions, with the broader principles of freedom and justice and all of the things that make the American Constitution one of the greatest freedom documents in history. And I think what Adams was saying is that the violence that the British and the American colonists and the new American nation-state did to basic principles of natural rights and freedom and human rights through the institution of slavery was so profound that it simply couldn't be spoken. So he couches it in terms of really a polite act of denial and an absence of honest discussion about it in the Constitution. He called it decent concealment. That instinct to avoid talking about things that are so uncomfortable and force us to look head on at some of the inherent hypocrisies and inconsistencies of how humans want to behave and how they actually behave. That we were doing ourselves a favor by not talking about it. I think that that is really an interesting way of framing it. And I think that's true today. A lot of people, and I've encountered this in my work in this project, in my writing and in my podcasting, when I talk about race and people just dive under the nearest desk and they don't want to talk about it. They're afraid to talk about it. And there are, I think, a a lot of reasons for that. But I think the fundamental reason really goes to this Adams quote, and that is they're happy in their sphere of decent concealment. They believe there's no good that can come from the conversation and when confronted with instances of obviously race-based injustice and the denial to black citizens in America of the most basic rights that the Constitution was drafted to promote and protect. You have this pretty predictable pattern of these symbolic statements that are so generalized that they can say that they have acknowledged the issue and the harm to our basic values without having to think critically about it or really do anything about it. And that's the institutional approach. And that was really the standard of response to what was happening in the summer of 2020. But it was built around the principle of decent concealment. And we don't really want to talk about this too much and we don't want to really have to think about how our decent concealment is perpetuating the very problems that were avoided and ignored and denied in the drafting of our founding documents so it's a powerful Dynamic. I'm guilty of that as well, and I have been over the course of my life. And I have to confess, when I'm talking to people about race, and we talk about the NCAA's exploitative business model, at times it is uncomfortable. And the easy thing to do and the safe thing to do is just pull back, change the conversation, and talk about the scouting report for next year's roster and whatever your favorite team is. I mean, that's safe territory, and I think it's one of the reasons, particularly in the context of college sports, people say, wait a minute, I don't want to talk about this stuff. I enjoy college sports because I don't want to talk about this stuff. So (laughs) go away. Keep that stuff out of this thing that I enjoy so much. And that, it's a decent concealment tactic. It's a brushback pitch. That decent concealment casts an enormously broad and deep shadow that allows institutions just like the National Collegiate Athletic Association to get away with a business model that is built on the exploitation of black labor. And you can't talk about that honestly. You get these broad statements. And that's why I think that what's happening right now in this perfect storm as it's playing out is really covering up the NCAA's corrupt business model at a time that we have a unique opportunity to really focus on it. And this nil debate, again, is a perfect example. One of the reasons I really wanted to drill down on how the NCAA has responded in the last month to its failure to get anything done for the benefit of these athletes is because in its failure, in the words that it uses, in the press releases it has put out, in the way that they've used other arms of American power and American influence to justify an action, the NCAA knows that we don't want to look too closely or put on our critical thinking glasses and really tease out what they're actually saying. They've been so effective at just churning out propaganda that gets immediately endorsed and given a stamp of approval by credible American people and institutions. And then it just becomes instant credibility, instant reality, and spontaneous consent to principles that are doing violence to fundamental American liberties. Just as an example of kind of how this decent concealment issue plays out and how there is this acknowledgement that there's a racial component out there, this nebulous notion that there's some racial injustice that's part of the NCAA business model. You get these references to it and then double down on the very principles that perpetuate the racial exploitation. So I'm going to explain why I think it's so easy for the NCAA to get away with what it's getting away with. So I live in North Carolina, and as I've told you guys a couple times earlier, I played basketball for Duke in the early 80s, and I'm familiar with sort of the lay of the land politically in North Carolina. But on July 2nd, North Carolina governor Roy Cooper issued an executive order and I did that episode on the Kentucky governor's executive order Andy Bashir and I don't know that was maybe a week ago and how Kentucky was trying to get ahead of this nil uncertainty and this interim policy so governor Cooper who I he's a great guy a good governor I think he's right down the middle politically and he is in the mold of North Carolina's quintessentially moderate governors, but he's also a politician and he is putting together a nil executive order that provides guidance. And it's an interesting executive order because it lays out only three, I say only, it lays out three really important mandatory restrictions in the market and then provides a list almost like a restaurant menu of additional restrictions that schools can adopt. They don't have to, but they are on solid ground if they do. And at some point I'll go through this in more detail because I think it is important to, to look at from a restriction standpoint. But in setting up this executive order, Governor Cooper has a bunch of whereas, way more whereas than Governor Bashir's executive order had. And he uses it to talk about some issues I think that may have political benefit to him and talks about Title IX, talks about women having the opportunity to benefit. And Actually, there's more emphasis on gender equity than there is on the racial model of big time college sports. But he does say this. He says, whereas basketball and football are the NCAA's two biggest sports with respect to generating revenue and media coverage. And whereas student athletes of color who are more likely to come from lower income backgrounds are leading competitors in these two sports. And whereas, it is therefore likely that allowing student-athletes to receive compensation for the name, image, and likeness will be particularly beneficial to students, student-athletes of color and may help alleviate racial inequality in intercollegiate sports. And those are really important whereases. I'm really happy that Governor Cooper included that because he didn't run from it. But then, this executive order includes... Restrictions that when I believe evaluated honestly, and I've talked some about these, but I'm going to talk about them in more detail as I break down both the legislation that's been proposed in Congress and then the bills that have been passed in state legislatures. But so many of these restrictions will have a disproportionate impact on the very student athletes of color, particularly black male athletes in revenue producing sports, football and men's basketball. And there has been no discussion about how these restrictions and how the double down on amateurism and the collegiate model and no pay for play and protecting the student athlete and all that stuff. How that disproportionately impacts the people who are responsible for funding or providing the labor for the entire marketplace and the entire marketplace is dependent on that labor. And so many of these restrictions Particularly the ones that put up artificial barriers to even entering into the name, image, and likeness market through these ridiculous credentialing and disclosure requirements that apply to anybody who has any form of a relationship with an athlete in a name, image, and likeness And then boosters and these agents, whether they're third party contractors or not, and the student athletes themselves. So it's well known, it's well understood that these kinds of paper oriented barriers and hurdles are going to have a disproportionate impact on people of color. That's not even a controversial theory. That's the way that it is in America. And all of these nil barriers are based on some assumptions that are patently false. And they assume, the NCAA assumes in this black hat, white hat, binary way of thinking about the world that there are good guys and there are bad guys, and they call them bad actors. And some of this federal legislation that's come from these Republican, NCAA-friendly senators explicitly adopt that way of thinking. If you're a bad actor, if you're an agent, if you're a booster, if you're an athlete, if you are a third-party contractor, you are presumed guilty until you have simply surrendered your autonomy to the institutional interest, and then they will decide the terms under which you and the athletes engage in the free market in the United States of America. That's the way these bills work. So they seem so innocuous, and when they're built around principles of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete, which have been propagandized in a way that make them virtually unchallengeable, you have cover for that. But I look at Governor Cooper's order, and it explicitly requires no pay for play. It explicitly requires that the universities can't pay the athletes. It explicitly requires, essentially, that the institutions adopt the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism in the student-athlete. When that's your starting point, you have already put yourself on pretty shaky ground when it comes to truly protecting the rights of the athletes, particularly the African-American athletes whose labors underwrite the entire business model. And then the other thing about this executive order and also Governor Bashir's executive order, and this is true for all the proposed nil laws or those that have been passed now or those that will be passed at some point. And that is that the primary motivating factor in getting these laws into place has very little to do with the whereases, you know, in these executive orders and all these bills. And you can whereas yourself to death. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, these regulations that are built around the nil, quote unquote, compensation movement are directed to one primary objective, And that is to either have an opportunity to gain a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market or avoid being at a competitive disadvantage in the talent acquisition market. So the last whereas, the whereas that leads right into the actual substance of these regulations and these limitations and restrictions that are contained in the executive order, says, whereas... Enacting immediate measures that would allow student-athletes to seek and receive compensation for commercial use of their name, image, and likeness will prevent the state of North Carolina from being at a competitive disadvantage in regard to enrollment at post-secondary education institutions within the state. That's it. It's about the talent acquisition market. That talent acquisition market is driven to two primary sports. Football and men's basketball and the overwhelming majority of the targets of that intense talent acquisition market are African-American men. So that's what they're trying to protect here. The labor pool and trying to make sure that the state of North Carolina is going to be at least on equal terms with any other state. In that battle for talent acquisition and the talent acquisition market that matters, the only talent acquisition markets that matter are the markets for Power 5 football and Power 5 men's basketball. And Power 5 men's basketball has the highest concentration of African-American athletes of any sport in the NCAA system, association-wide, in any division. So those are the interests that are really being protected here. These limitations, and they're universal limitations, and they are inspired by the NCAA's initial resistance to name, image, and likeness going back to 2019 and the working group. And by all of these limitations put on the market to make sure that the institutional interests are protected and that nobody gets an unfair competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. They're not talking about competition for water polo participants or for golfers or for fencing. <laughs> you know, They're not talking about that. They're talking about big time football and big time Men's basketball. So, wh- why is that so baked in to the way that the decision makers at every level, p- political level and the judiciary, at the administrative level, at the institutional level, at the athletic administrative level, why is that thinking so instinctive? And I think to really tease that out, we have to talk a little bit about human nature. So I want to talk a little bit about how we process information and how we form judgments. And I want to use as a template for that a 2012 book written by an Israeli economist and psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book titled Thinking Fast and Slow After Years and Years of Study. He basically broke down the way that human beings think. All of us. We are all subject to the way that the mind works in this respect. He divided the way we think into two systems. System one is the implicit way of thinking, the unconscious way of thinking, the fast way of thinking, informing judgments and making decisions. That doesn't require a lot of effort, and it is based on a variety of factors, including our personal experience, which is valid, but it also has some flaws, and there's some reliability issues there. But it's also influenced, to a large extent, by the messaging that we get from the outside world, the purposeful messaging to lead us to believe certain things and to think certain things without critically examining them. And then there is system two. The system two way of thinking is the logical way of thinking, the rational way of thinking, the slow way of thinking where you have to actually stop, put the brakes on your system one fast thinking and really look critically at all of the surrounding circumstances of the conclusion that you have drawn or the decision that you need to make and really try to take the unconscious bias out of it. And according to Kahneman, we are in our system 1 thinking between 95 and 98% of the time which means we're in our rational slow logical thinking only 2 to 5% of the time so we take mental shortcuts and i would say particularly in the 21st century with the amount of information we have to manage and the, the way that things move so quickly we are more susceptible to manipulation through our system one thinking than probably at any other time. And that documentary, The Social Dilemma, that came out last year, where big tech executives, Google, Facebook, all those kinds of people who have developed these massive mind control machines, spoke out on the extent to which those platforms and those industries are built on psychological manipulation to control your behavior, to get you to interact with those platforms so that they can make money and they have been extraordinarily successful. If you haven't seen that documentary, you really need to. It's eye-opening. When you look at how some of these ways of thinking about that technology came in in seemingly innocuous, innocent ways, but have been commandeered to really dark, cynical, commercial purposes, it's frightening. We're moving more and more in that direction. So, in this documentary, you get some System 2 breakdown of some of these technologies that we just buy into and then jump in head first with our System 1 fast thinking. That's exactly where they want you. And in a similar vein, that's where the NCAA wants people when it comes to buying in to their fundamental false narratives that when you use your System 2 thinking are laughable. But when you're using your system one thinking, you just say, oh, okay, well, sure. And the other component of that is that once a narrative takes hold, and this is done through the, this spontaneous consent. Propaganda that Richard Southall at the University of South Carolina and Ellen Starowski at Drexel University talked about in their 2013 article on the collegiate model. And I talked about that in detail in my episodes on the collegiate model. But they talked specifically about how the NCAA propagandizes and gets into the stream of commerce and into the American consciousness. A way of thinking about college sports that when you're using your system one thinking has immediate buy-in to... All these principles that when you break down, you isolate and you break them down logically are indefensible and completely illogical. And there's subtypes of fast thinking, of system one thinking, where we are using shortcuts to manage all this information that comes to us. One of the things that we do is we substitute a simpler question for a difficult one. The NCAA has tried to make this nil issue they've presented it to the public as this incredibly difficult unsolvable issue and we've been working on this for years and years and we just can't make it happen so the default then is to their simpler approach which is to just preserve the status quo so they want us to substitute the simpler question, and that is just keep things rocking the way they are, because it's impossible to make heads or tails of this. And when I talked about Mark Few a few episodes ago in the connection with that June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee, I mentioned that I had done a post on him, because when he started talking about NIL in 2019, it was some press conference, some pre-season press conference, and those things are boring. And I actually thought it was kind of cool that Few at least ruffled a few feathers here. But the California Fair Pay to Play Act was coming out and there was a big discussion in the media and in college sports and Few got a question on that or that vaguely related to that. and He went on this rant against the California law and against California Governor Gavin Newsom telling him to stay in his lane. He didn't know what he was doing. Let the NCAA experts figure it out. And this is really complicated stuff. And he said, this is just like healthcare. care. You, you can't solve health care overnight. And you got to let our people do their good work. And he, he goes on. But that's just a false dynamic. But people bought into it. And they bought into the NCAA's way of thinking at every step of this discussion on name, image, and likeness. And on that single point, what's happened just in the last, what, week? Is that schools and governors and conferences and states have looked at the nil issue, and they have come up with policies in less than a week. (laughs) My alma mater did that on, I don't know, July 1st or July 2nd. Duke came out with a name, image, and likeness policy, and it, it has a lot of these restrictions, and I guess I'll talk about that at some point. But it also brought in a way of thinking about this through the institutional lens that is important, and I think undermines some of the NCAA's propagandization of the difficulty of putting into place name, image, and likeness regulations. So these institutions did this in a nanosecond, and the NCAA has been saying, it's impossible, you can't do that, you can't put these regulations into effect, it's just too difficult. It's like solving healthcare. care, all that propaganda, and nobody's saying, wait a minute, the NCAA's been lying to us. They had no intention of taking any action on name, image, and likeness. But in our system one thinking, we just swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. And then the other thing that the system one thinking makes us susceptible to are false choices. And the NCAA has been so successful, and S- S- South Hill and Starowski really drilled down on this, but the NCAA has been so successful over the decades, and this really goes back to Walter Byers in the 1950s and when he was trying to keep control of the televised football empire. But it went on steroids with Miles Brand and now with Mark Emmert in this name, image, and likeness debate. And that is the false choice between amateurism or or the collapse of college sports. There is no scenario in that binary thinking and that false choice under which you could eliminate amateurism and preserve the beauty of college sports and the market value of college sports. That false choice has driven decision makers at every level this fear that amateurism is just so essential to the product as it's defined and to the cultural value system of mainstream America that if you do anything that compromises the NCAA's conceptualization of, of amateurism, the only result will be the fatal collapse of of college sports. In my episode 8 on fealty to amateurism or judicial fealty to amateurism, I talked about how that effect played out even in these Ninth Circuit antitrust suits that on their face were favorable to athletes. But when you actually look at how those cases evolved from 2006 in, in white, then into Austin, I'm sorry, then into and then into Austin and, and now into house, it has been a very slow go. And these ninth circuit judges and Claudia Wilkin, the district court judge have been purposefully slow and they have used an incrementalist approach to chipping away at amateurism because they are so afraid that, that NCAA might be right and that in this binary choice, if we just say to hell with amateurism, let's just let the free market sort this thing out and let the university sort this thing out, that'll be the end of college sports as we know it. But it's so effective because right now, In this debate, the NCAA is still using that propaganda, and that's what it's going to base its renewal of its campaign in the Senate on. That's why I said one of the ultimate ironies in this whole failed NCAA nil compensation effort is that now that some free market forces are going to be in play and they're going to go into effect, the longer they're in effect the harder it's going to be for the NCAA to make the case in Congress that there should be federal protections and immunities that would give the NCAA the authority to pull back on that market or to eliminate it altogether. So the market is going to expose this false choice for what it is. And then the other component about the system one, system two thinking that's so powerful, and I addressed this in some of the early episodes as well, that is that, These false premises, these false choices are adopted and immediately propagandized by credible spokespeople. You have in the media, you have people at these institutions, you have people throughout the status quo, stakeholder, beneficiary groups in big-time college sports, just accepting NCAA propaganda as revealed truth. And there could not be a better example of that than Mark Emmert's quotes in that statement that the NCAA issued on June 30th, just seven hours and 40 minutes before these state laws were to go into effect, in which he pointed the finger at the quote-unquote legislative and legal environment over which he presumably had no control. It was just this sort of omniscient force that's floating above the college sports world, and gosh, what are we going to do? We have a legal and legislative environment that prevents us from taking action. He apologized for not providing a more detailed plan, and the student-athletes deserve that, but boy, it's this legal and legislative environment. That BS was put out into the public domain as if it made any sense at all, without any critical thinking, without any system two thinking, the system one thinking on that ridiculous quote, and that ridiculous deflection was immediately consumed by statements from credible third-party sources, the media and the institutions. And Mark Emmert's quote was just an absolute lie because he, as much as anyone, is responsible for this legal and legislative environment that he claims prevents him from taking any action on name, image, and likeness. It was the NCAA who went to Congress and went to the Senate and engaged in this two-year campaign, this stealth campaign, to get federal protections and immunities that, if granted, would have ended the athletes' rights movement, period. And I think it's really important to understand that if the NCAA had been successful in its campaign in the Senate and in federal courts in 2020 and into 2021 with the Austin suit, and they had gotten from Congress federal preemption of state laws that conflict in any way with NCAA compensation limits, or they got absolute antitrust immunity, the same immunity they were seeking in the Austin case, and they got a provision from Congress that prohibited NCAA athletes from being employees, then the environment we'd be in right now is one in which we wouldn't even be having this discussion because there wouldn't be any state nil no laws, because preemption would have immediately, with a stroke of a pen, wiped those laws completely off the books. The Austin suit and this suit out in California would have been immediately dismissed because the NCAA would have been granted absolute Antitrust immunity, and there would be absolutely no way for students to organize themselves as laborers because they are prohibited from being employees. So the environment today wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be having this discussion. And as it turns out, it was the NCAA's own incompetence and arrogance that allowed. This environment where athletes can actually participate just a little bit in the free market. And the U.S. Supreme Court, in their opinion, really was saying to the NCAA in subtle but I think unmistakable ways, what the hell were you doing here? You shot yourself in the foot. It was NCAA greed, NCAA arrogance, and their religious crusade to have iron-fisted control over college sports regulation in a way that keeps the labor force, this labor force of African-American men in football and men's basketball under the thumb of the NCAA. And now, having created the very environment, legal and legislative, that Mark Emmert claims prevents it from doing anything on nil, They're back to doubling down on their propaganda and we're back to the system one thinking approach and the narrative spinning and the powerful tools that the NCAA has at its disposal to shape its message and control its message. And we go merrily along in our System 1 thinking, which brings the NCAA another step closer to renewing its efforts in Congress to try to get a bill that gives them at least some of the things they want to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. That is such a powerful part of the NCAA campaign here, that they can get away with that kind of propaganda and have it accepted as unchallengeable truth. That's a dangerous dynamic, not just in in the context of college sports, but it's a dangerous dynamic in America now. And the social dilemma talks about that. But how do you get people into their system to thinking? where they're only in it for two to five percent. I wonder if Kahneman updated his research, whether that percentage would be even lower because of the extent to which we rely on our system one thinking in a marketplace of ideas that's moving so fast that we just can't keep up. I have to pull myself out of the system one thinking sometimes. I'm as susceptible to it as anybody else, That I do it in so many aspects of my life. But after a lot of research, a lot of careful thinking, about these issues in the context of the Big time college sports marketplace. I can engage my system to thinking very quickly when I'm looking at how an issue pops up and how it makes its way into the media. And I look critically at the words that are actually used in the context in which they're used and the motives of the people who are using them. And we don't do that in most aspects of our life. It takes too much time, it's too hard. And it's taken me half years of research and thinking about these things and writing about these things and talking about. About these things. To be in a position where I can put, put all pieces of the puzzle into a system two way of thinking that leads me to a conclusion that is completely on the opposite side of the earth from what most people are concluding through their system one thinking. And that is a freedom issue. It's becoming a freedom issue. And I believe it's a threat to our whole way of thinking about American values and thinking about our relationship to institutions. It's a threat to democracy. And that was really one of the primary conclusions of this documentary, The Social Dilemma. And the NCAA could not be a better example of a propagandist who is engaging in indefensible behavior through indefensible principles, but gets away with it because of this spontaneous consent to system one thinking that just happens to align with the NCAA's commercial interests. We're seduced by these principles that we can attach an emotional level to something that we know is irrational. All those things, the amateurs and the collegiate model, the student athlete, all of those things have been propagandized to elicit an emotional response. And when you're in that thinking, the system one thinking plus a positive emotional payoff, and you get some dopamine rush from those associations. That's an extraordinarily powerful dynamic, and it's hard to pull people out of that. And people resist being pulled out of that. And all those features that go into the image of big-time college sports are really powerful. And I see people talking about how the NCAA has a bad name, and they're a reviled organization, and Mark Emmert should be fired, and all that stuff. At the emotional level, at the system one thinking level, that's not how we really think about the NCAA because all they have to do is pivot to these concepts that now are free-floating values in American culture that pull us right back into the propaganda of big-time college sports. Again, this that's just a really difficult dynamic to combat. Maybe I was engaging in my version of System One thinking I'm in this bubble over here on my views on college sports and the NCAA, in wanting to believe, truly wanting to believe, that the NCAA's days are numbered. And based on the instant, spontaneous consent to the NCAA's propaganda after that June 30th press release. I don't know. It is such a powerful institution. And what I'm seeing, at least the early results and how the Power Five schools are responding to this leadership vacuum on name, image, and likeness, they're adopting the NCAA's principles right down the line. So they're doubling down on the NCAA. And I believe that there is a likelihood that they're employing the same strategy that they've employed All along, in trying to decide whether or not they are with the NCAA or apart from the NCAA. And that goes back to the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes that I talked about. And if that's true, then you're going to have this coordinated effort as they retool and they go back to Congress. And I've talked about the power of the Power Five conferences in the political process, independent of the NCAA and the NCAA's lawyers and lobbyists. The Power Five standing alone are far more powerful at the political level than the NCAA could ever be because of the meaning of the football and basketball products in the Power Five states. And they can engage that energy and harness it at the political level to get senators and congressmen in those states to buy into whatever they want. And I think that's what's happening. You're seeing a shift in the focus of the interests that are applying pressure in Congress. And those interests, I think, are increasingly coming directly through Power Five interests, not through the NCAA. But if the Power Five said, to hell with the NCAA, to hell with amateurism, we're going to just think about this in a completely different way. That makes it much more difficult to get a bill from the Senate. It just would muck things up. And so the Power Five, to a certain extent, have the NCAA national office and Mark Emmert exactly where they want him. He's weak, He's powerless. He has little credibility. But if they can come in and get something from Congress that puts them back on track to snuffing out the athletes' rights movement, and then the NCAA can act as the national uniform governing authority to enforce the restrictions that limit athletes' rights, then that's a great situation for the Power Five, and particularly for Power Five football interests, because All of the enforcement and infractions processes are funded by the March Madness contract, not from football revenue. None of that goes to the NCAA because of Board of Regents. So again, the power of the institutional interests here and the ability of them through our system one thinking to manipulate us into a construction of reality that simply doesn't exist is really almost unchallengeable. And we'll see. And that's why these federal courts over... It's taken decades for them to get to a point where they can openly say, this is a fraud. That's essentially what the Supreme Court was saying about amateurism. And it was unanimous. And they looked at this through the lens of traditional laws and looked and compared the NCAA's excuses, their amateurism-based excuses, and said, no, you don't get a free pass here. You don't get to just say the word amateurism and all of a sudden you get whatever you want. But it's taken, even in federal courts, with this exceptionally brilliant legal minds. It's taken decades to get to this point, to a point where they can say that out loud. And when I first started my writing on this two and a half years ago, I said, we can wait on the antitrust laws and the ch- a change in the laws. We can wait on a bill from Congress, but nothing is going to change at a fundamental level unless we change the way we think and feel about college sports. So this is about changing the narrative at the system one level, the way that we instinctively think about college sports. And I embarked on my writing with a view towards at least putting my stuff out there. And maybe if I'm lucky, having some influence with some people who might be able to take that and change their thinking a little bit. That's it. Just persuasion. That's ultimately how things work. And the NCAA has been manipulating the thinking purposefully to its business interests. So until Americans hear the word amateurism and immediately say bullshit, okay, or the collegiate model, and they think that's just the regressive diversion of wealth from black athletes to white beneficiaries, or the student athlete, oh, that was just a fraud invented by Walter Byers in the 1950s to avoid workers' compensation liability, until that is the system one thinking to these principles that are indefensible under American principles of justice and liberty and egalitarianism and equality of opportunity and all the things that make this country great. Until we get that system one thinking in place, nothing's going to change. And the NCAA, I think, knows that. And I think their people are telling them, you need to get something locked in here at the legal level that can't be challenged. And then you get it now because – there's going to come a point in time where people, even people who now are happily pulled into their system one thinking and all the NCAA amateurism BS, they may come to think about this differently. If that happens, then that's going to be the engine of change. And we're not there yet. So on this Independence Day, July 4th, 2021, where we are finally... And joyfully experiencing a breakout from all of the restrictions that we felt on July 4th of 2020. I'm going to try to stay in my system two thinking in a positive way. and Think about the athletes, particularly the African-American athletes in football and men's basketballs, having the opportunity for a little taste of freedom in the name, image, and likeness market. And again, it's impossible to predict how it's all going to play out. But I think there was meaningful joy in the athlete community. They're going to get a taste of freedom. And I think that's such a powerful element that this could be a force that starts to change the narrative and change the thinking. Because one of the things that the NCAA has been so effective at doing through its fear-mongering campaign, and the sky's going to fall if we do X, Y, or Z, is that the free markets have never been permitted to operate in a way to test that theory that fundamental theory that there will be a fatal collapse of college sports if these athletes get a penny of nil compensation that isn't regulated by the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And if that lie is put to bed in this name, image, and likeness marketplace, and in the fall, people are going to football games, and the contributions to the athletics department increase instead of decrease, if the revenues increase instead of decrease. And there's no shift in public perception or consumer demand. Then that's a huge step forward because in one of my first episodes, I think actually it was my very first episode, I was talking about the external regulators that the NCAA was trying to take off the table, Congress, federal courts, and state legislatures. The other even more potent external regulator is free markets, and that's the thing that the NCAA is most afraid of. And you have instant results. You know exactly what's happening in real time. You don't need to speculate. You don't need to rely on these fear-mongering projections about what might happen. You look at what is actually happening. And the NCAA is scared to death of that because it exposes their business model for what it is. And they can't run from that. So on this Independence Day, I am going to do my best to enjoy. It's a beautiful day and I want to feel good about... All of the values that this country is built upon, and I do, because I really believe that for all its flaws, our values, our constitution, our principles of freedom and liberty and equality of opportunity are the best formulation of governance and human beings organizing themselves into a functioning nation, an independent sovereign nation in the history of human experience. And is it perfect? No. Are there flaws? Yes. And I think one of the beauties of American freedom is that the citizens who have been least able to participate on equal terms are African Americans. I don't think there's any question about that. And despite the false promises and despite the repeated denials of the very liberties that the Constitution is designed to protect, The African-American community keeps coming back to freedom. And that is just, it is inspiring. It's an amazing thing. And this seemingly small little piece of freedom and the ability of these athletes, particularly the African-American athletes whose labors underwrite the entire $20 billion sports industry, they are embracing their freedom and they have a belief, a fundamental belief that they can take advantage of the freedoms that this country offers. And they're doing it in the face of enormous institutional pressure to defeat their interests and to to defeat their freedoms. And it's a beautiful thing. So with that, I'll close this out. And I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope you will join me for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Happy Independence Day. Take care.